Hey friends, it's Jeff. We now have four years of Around the Circle content, ranging from the basic to the very advanced, but housed in our feed are 40 or so deep dives into movie characters. To make these episodes more bingeable, more shareable, more findable, we have started a new podcast feed, which we called Movie Typing. So you can find Movie Typing on iTunes, on Spotify, on all the places that you get your podcasts. Uh, we believe that by thinking hard about the personalities of movie characters, we can understand the types better. In the weeks ahead, we're going to be releasing all 40 of our remastered recordings. We're going to continue to add new content to that podcast on a monthly basis. We'll be doing fresh deep dives. And we're kicking off that feed with these next two episodes where we discuss the best representations. Dare we say we go around the circle with the best representations of the nine types in all of film. So thank you so much and enjoy. Yep. I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Rose, where we're going, we don't need Rose. I feel the need, the need for speed. Ow! Good morning, Vietnam! What country you from? What? What? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what? All right, all right, all right. These guys are 11. How do you like them, man? The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. You're going to need a bigger potion. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. We love some movie characters, and sometimes the best way to get into the characters we love most is to dig deep into their motives, their calling, their sense of self, and talk about what they really, really want. This is movie typing, where we select, engage, and unveil the intentions and drive of the greatest characters on film. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado. With me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology, and personality typing expert. Hello. TJ, we're going to spend the next few years typing some characters. Cool. Just like the last few years. That's right. <laughs> I enjoyed the last few years. Me too. Yeah. Keep rolling. It's going to be good. Now find the stereotypes all these people are in. You and I have recorded about 40 episodes through the Around the Circle podcast. Start this feed. We are. We're experts now, yeah? Yeah, I think that's that's what that means, right? 40 uh, podcast episodes? Yeah. Two white guys and 40 episodes. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about it, something like that. <laughs> we at least know what to expect. That's more what I meant. Oh, there we go. Okay. Deep dives. Have you found anything enjoyable with these deep dives? I mean, it's it's mostly enjoyable. Getting really into it with someone standing at the counter of my coffee shop is harder because there are other people who can hear us, and I don't want them to know how much of a nerd I am. So, <laughs> <laughs> gotta play it cool. Yeah, I never think about that. I'm I'm just I let my freak flag fly, as is said. Nice. We're talking about typing movie characters. Typing. Typing is a fun word. Yeah. Routinely, this, as you were kind of saying, lets me get much more into the depthier levels of the films. I, I, I find that I watch movies at a very superficial level. Mm. And it takes me two or three views and reading the script to go, oh, that's what this is about. <laughs> it's funny. I am actually the opposite. Yeah. Like it takes me like two or three views to, to stop like analyzing it typically fight club seven 
Reservoir Dogs, walked out just going, man, that was a bunch of trash. Oh, man, that's crazy <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> just didn't get it the first time. So I just walked out of the movie theater going, that was really violent. Sure, yeah. But after our deep dives, man, tear into some some goodness there. Well, it helps if you have, have a friend who gently corrects all of your wrong opinions <laughs> about it. So. That's what I need. This is <laughs> you're a treasure in my life. That's what I'm here for. One of the things about typing movie characters is oftentimes you can see yourself in these characters on screen and be able to actually talk about your inner life, your own motives, perhaps even be inspired in ways that perhaps you wouldn't have been before. This is this has also been of great value to me, and uh, that's what we're going to be talking about on this podcast: is the motives. Of some movie characters. So let's talk about Ingram. Ingram is the tool that you and I use. We'll principally use the Ingram to type characters. Why the Enneagram? Because uh, it's the best one. It is the best one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's, um, I, I think the Enneagram is most useful in these kinds of settings because when the writing is good, when, when the writing of the screenplay or the, or the show or, or the improv acting, it, when, when that is executed correctly, a huge part of what they're doing is showing us the character's motivation. Yep. And, and that's, that's what the Enneagram is about. The Enneagram is about our motivation at the, at the core of it. It's about how we see the world and why we do the things that we do. And uh, that's maybe the most interesting way to sort of type characters. Like you have the hero's journey and you can put all the characters in the archetypes. You have Myers-Briggs and you can do like which Lord of the Rings character you are on the on the 16-point graph and all of those things. But I think the Enneagram actually is a more interesting way to, to dissect and understand these characters. Agreed. Yeah, when I look at the charts and it says... This character is the sage. This one's the warrior. This is the beauty to rescue. I'm not falling into one of these right. camps. But talking about motive, that probably does hit some places. Like, what am I motivated by? Because everything that we do yeah. comes out of our motive. It helps make sense of why I always identify with the sage, who is generally an old man. Right. <laughs> and I probably a haven't been an old man for most of my life, so... Uh, <laughs> What it really is is that your preferred future is to be in a cave somewhere that's pretty comfortable, nobody bugging you. Wearing a robe instead of pants. Oh, right. That'd be so great. Yeah. Well, dear listener, there's two things you need to get into this podcast. One, you need to enjoy pop culture. Obviously, we're typing movie characters. We're going to go deep on this front. Yeah, if you don't enjoy pop culture, it's okay to turn this off right now. We will not be offended. It's not for our, either of our spouses. They love refined things like art right. and relationships. And doing <laughs> things with their lives. <laughs> Second, it can be very helpful for you to know and have a name for your own personality type. We're going to be throwing out some tools on this front, but uh, in the Enneagram, our type refers to what motivates us. I'm a person with this kind of imprint, this kind of disposition type is all over our language from typesetting to typecast to typify to stereotype to typical. We talk about types of things and one of the best ways to talk about motive and motive in characters is just to talk about the type of motive people have. And of course you and I have motives. 
and it's worth naming those types. So this is going to be an intro to how the whole podcast is going to work. Enneagram says there's nine big motives, nine archetypes, as it were. And we're going to talk through those nine archetypes with some very famous characters just as an intro. This is what this type looks like and this type. And you can kind of jump into the sorts of conversations we're going to be having. So we're going to start with some characters we think are ones. One of the things that Enneagram does is it elevates nine types and just talks about those types with numbers. So there's ones, there's twos, there's fives, there's eights, etc. We're going to start with ones. Ones in Enneagram language are reformers. They're improvers. They're idealists. Uh, they guide their actions with a heavy focus on right and wrong. We might look at quotes from Superman or Captain America, these sorts of folks, heavy focus on right and wrong, idealistic about how the world should be. But I would love to start our exploration of ones with some Star Wars and the fantastic Carrie Fisher, because I think Princess Leia is a stellar, realistic, complex example of an Enneagram One. I mean, I love Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher is a, a national treasure. Yeah. I was rewatching 30 Rock the other day, and it was her. There's an episode where she shows up as a, a comedy writer from the 60s, and she's yep. just this alcoholic, has no job because she sticks to her principles instead of selling out, and it's just hilarious. Help me, Liz Lemon. You're my only hope. She's so funny. One of the things about Star Wars. Uh, you've heard of Star Wars. Star Wars, this is the show in space? <laughs> yeah, that's, okay. the, that's the one that I'm talking about. Her <laughs> first line is dripping with oneness, with idealism, with the right and wrong. Vader shows up, towering over this woman. She starts yelling at him about right and wrong. The Imperial Senate will not steal for this. When they hear you've attacked a diplomat... She's got right and wrong on her side. This is how the systems work. And Vader actually says to her don't act so surprised your highness you weren't on any mercy mission this time he's even saying that she's this this idealist going around the galaxy helping people out right you know navigating her life according to principle this is the introduction to this character you want to talk about ones and right and wrong there's a real clear sense of there's an order to things. There's there's a way that everything should work, and so the this idea of right and wrong is is deeply embedded in ones, and it's it's very black and white for most for a lot of them. And there's this need to be on the correct side. So even deeper than than whatever society or whatnot says, that ones have spent time thinking about like what is right, what is wrong, and how do we define those terms so that I know that I'm on the correct side of right and wrong. And then they navigate the world based on these categories. So so they always want to be on the correct side, on the on the right side of of how things are going. I mean, it it means that someone who is a, a diplomat for the Senate is is going to behave accordingly, according to the rules, and, you know, maybe also be a spy, but she's not lying. She's on a diplomatic mission, and, and the spy <laughs> thing is, that's a, that's a side issue for her. She's still following the rules, and then there's this other thing, and we're, we're just not going to talk about that part. I imagine the spying comes out of her deep embrace of right and wrong. Oh, it has to. Yeah, absolutely. She's having it both ways here. 
all of us probably care to some extent about right and wrong, but ones, this is the thing. Yeah. This is the filter through which everything is processed. How they see themselves, ones are often quite self-critical. How they see others, you see a ton of judgmentalism that comes into the language of ones, and we see it with this character. Too little short for a stormtrooper. I recognized your foul stench when I was brought on board. This is on rescue! You came in here, did you have a plan for getting out? Looks like you managed to cut off our only escape route. All quite cutting critical statements judging according to some standard that that she apparently knows and expects other people to know right and and she is uh she's a an extremely self-possessed woman and she's willing to say what's on her mind uh and it, it is a lot of really sort of judgmental kind of language uh and she's you know that that the sort of the anger that comes with ju- being judgmental is is right on the tip for her all the time. Not only grounds her life, but she ends up being kind of a foundational presence for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Like the sequels or don't, she ends up being kind of this rock that a lot of the characters are just grounding themselves on because she's so principled, so such a believer in the cause, as it were. Right. Brings us to another archetypical one. Uh, one of my favorite movies and displays on film of, of oneness is Ben Kingsley's Gandhi. Beautiful movie. Just gorgeous movie. And a lot of the language that gets into his mouth really highlights the ways ones are in the world. Again, notice the right and wrong language here. If you are a minority of one, the truth is the truth. Despite the best intentions of the best of you, you must, in the nature of things, humiliate us to control us. There are unjust laws as there are unjust men. An eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. There's a scene at the beginning of this movie. It's like a four-hour movie, but at the beginning of the movie, he's speaking in front of this huge room, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to oppose uh, the deep racism in South Africa. And he speaks and he says, There is no cause for which I am prepared to kill. Whatever they do to us, we will attack no one, kill no one. But we will not give our fingerprints, not one of us. They will imprison us, they will fine us, they will seize our possessions, but they cannot take away our self-respect if we do not give it to them. Have you been to prison? They beat us and torture us. I say they beat I am asking you to fight. To fight against their anger, not to provoke it. We will not strike a blow, but we will receive them. And through our pain, we will make them see their injustice. And it will hurt, as all fighting hurts but we cannot lose. We cannot. They may torture my body, break my bones, even kill me. Then they will have my dead body, not my obedience. You'll notice all the principles here at hand, and we could list 20 other quotes from this movie. 
Yeah, I think this is uh, uh, Gandhi is a great example of uh, not only do you get judgmentalism with ones, but you also get incredible integrity. Like they, yeah. it, if they believe it is right, they will stick to that and and not deviate from that path. And and here's Gandhi, and someone who is trying to to overthrow the British Empire, basically, and and he is is not willing to do it in a way that that gives up his his integrity the thing that he believes in the most he will die for this cause but he won't kill for it and and i think that it's it's just a it's such a good example of the sort of stick to itiveness uh that that ones can possess one thing that you'll see with a lot of ones superman captain america Gandhi, Leia, etc., is they believe in their heart that if they are good, if they're good enough, other people are going to see it and they're going to desire to be good also. Right. It's like uh, like their goodness is somehow going to spill into everybody else if they're if they if they're just good enough. You see it here. Live as an example, but their their reason is not to be an example. It's because they're trying to make the world better and it has to start with me. A lot of issues for ones about control, though. Mm-hmm. And you see this in Gandhi. Gandhi is fighting for his homeland, for India. He's trying to put a, push out British imperialism. And the function, the way that Gandhi's revolution works, you know, is through nonviolent, aggressive, rehumanizing methods that really seek to provoke. And so there's, there's, one, there's a handful of great quotes, again, on this. At one point, describing the revolution, he says, Is it all over if they arrest you now? Not if they arrest me or a thousand or ten thousand. It's not only generals who know how to plan campaigns. What if they don't arrest you? What if they don't react at all? Something for your notebook. The function of a civil resistor is to provoke response. And we will continue to provoke until they respond or they change the law. Mm -hmm. They are not in control. We are. That is the strength of civil resistance. It's that marriage of being in control of yourself as well as being good. One of the things that his his methods really seem to land on is where those two circles overlap. Yeah, I'm struck by um, someone like Gandhi who inspires change in a huge group of people. And it it's easy to try and and sort of like lead people. Uh, I I guess it's not easy. It's there's a lot of people in the world who are trying to lead people because they want to be in charge. And Gandhi wants to change things, and he'll only do that change by being the first one. That's it. Uh, he's he's the one that says, uh, "Be the change you want to see in the world." Right? Is that Gandhi? Yeah. Of all things, I thought I think that's Michael Jackson. But. <laughs> 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 but Gandhi is is not trying to get everyone else to to enact this change because he wants to be in charge. He's trying to get everyone else to do the right thing and it starts with him. Yeah. And and he's also completely willing to be the only one if he's the only one who does it. Again, very grounding. Uh Mahatma means great soul. It's it's got like this paternal element 
it. You know, it's uh, this is the father of the country mm-hmm. going on here. And again, all of that's based on these these principles. Uh, the movie ends with with like kind of a voiceover in Gandhi saying, "When I despair, I remember that the way of truth and love is always one. There may be tyrants and murderers, and for a time, they can seem invincible. But in the end, they always fail." Think of it always. And that's a just a, a again, foundational grounding belief, like commitment to goodness. This mm-hmm. is going to win in the end. A lot of the heroes that we really enjoy in film have that disposition. And I think there's a, um, there's a real clear sense of looking to a future that doesn't exist yet, but from the present moment. Uh, because ones are going to be hyper focused on what's happening right now in front of them, and and there's also this eye toward what what could be, and we need to to do what we can now in order to get to this sort of hypothetical future, and and that is a great way of portraying that that it's hope, but it's also a a really present focused the attention is on what we have to do now in order to get to this thing that could be. Yep. I would want to argue that some of the better superhero uh, characters, more popular superhero characters kind of have this going on and a lot of the tension in their movies from Superman to Nolan's Batman to Captain America in, in his trilogy the thing they're really wrestling with is their principles. So the Joker is trying to get Batman to break his one rule. Right. Apparently the Batman is is committed to these sorts of right and wrong rules. Or Superman has to choose between nuclear weapons in, in Christopher Reeve's mm-hmm. movie. You know, do I save a bunch of people or do I keep a promise? Uh, or in Captain America, in the MCU, you see it in the language a lot. So for example, in Civil War, he's having a conversation with Tony Stark. I don't mean to make things difficult. I know, because you're a very polite person. If I see a situation pointed south, I can't ignore it. Sometimes I wish I could. No, you don't. No, I don't. And Stark, for special emphasis, knows exactly what's going on here and says, Sometimes, sometimes I want to punch you in your perfect teeth. Because he's such an embodiment of the ideal. Right. And right. sees himself as as like he owns that. Well, and and interestingly, Tony, who we'll talk about this later, who is obsessed with image, mm-hmm. like the the thing that he's upset about is here's someone who is not just the image of perfection, but is the embodiment of the kind of respect and and goodness that Tony is sort of aiming for. Yeah, yeah. You'll notice his. Path, this is one of the reasons Winter Soldier is a brilliant movie is because it strips away and breaks all the all the all the places that Captain America thought this is where you invest, this is what's right and wrong, good and bad. You know, I'm here to fight for, in the words of Superman, I'm here to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. Right. And in Winter Soldier, all of that is sabotaged, and he says For as long as I can remember, I just wanted to do what was right. Guess I'm not quite sure what that is anymore. And I thought I could throw myself back in and follow orders, serve. 
just not the same. And it's like that—that's where the tension in the film comes from. Mm-hmm. It's not his abilities. It's not his strength. It's really something internal, and it's about motive. Yeah, and it's also about recognizing that it's not as easy to align yourself with good as it was when he started. Yep. Like the, things have just gotten more complicated, and and I I know that. There were lots of things bad in the 40s. I, I'm not saying that everything was good and the army was was totally worth it, but but it was really easy to see this clear deline- delineation between what is good and who is on the good side and what yeah. is wrong and who is on the bad side. Yeah. In the 40s, that was easy. And so when when he's going through this experience of he aligned himself with this organization that is now completely corrupt now he has to refigure out where he draws those lines where he decides what is right and wrong because 70 years ago he did what he was told because that was his orders it worked because the people were good and he felt great about himself right and the cause he was serving yeah so to put some flesh on this i'm an enneagram one Uh, That's how I type. So when I come to these movies, I'm really attracted to these movies, as well as some other movies. We might name Moneyball or Steve Jobs. There's a bunch of ones that are in um, The Big Short. Lots of characters there are ones. And when I see those movies and I identify the motives, and I'm like, that's who I am. And I find myself in places like these. And what do you do with that? It can be incredibly helpful to name the motives, see the struggles. I, I read a, a Muhammad Ali quote today that was something like, if you have the same views when you're 50 as you did when you were 20, you wasted 30 years of your life, <laughs> which was really challenging to me. But as a as a one, I do know what it's like to change my mind over time and, mm-hmm. and my visions of right and wrong shift. And that changes a lot of who I am and how I spend my time and energies and being able to invest in these sorts of movies, these sorts of characters, does great good for my heart. Yep. Let's move to the Enneagram 2s. Great. Different type. Enneagram 2s are different from Enneagram 1s because they have a different motive. Where 1s are going to get their direction, bearings from the systems, ethical principles, right and wrong. 2s are motivated to be wanted. It's a very relational motive. That's what will be principal. When deciding what to do, often gaining the love of others, earning the love of others is going to be principle. So we might look at a character like Wally from the fine Pixar film, or I like baby Houseman from uh, dirty dancing. But for our discussion here, I don't know that you and I have ever talked about this, but I like this character as a two. I'd love to put Forrest Gump as a archetypical yeah. two for us to discuss. Yeah. Cause you know what? Jenny and me was like peas and carrots. That's an identity statement. Just like peas and carrots. And it is him wed relationally to a person who he's not married to until the end. But it's like, I know who I am because this person cares about me. Yeah. And he's not even a smart man, but he knows what love is. Yep. It's true. Much of his way of being in the world is serving serving his mom, serving the military, serving Bubba, serving Jenny, doing those things and then gaining their, serving Lieutenant Dan and then gaining 
affection in return. In fact, Jenny at one point calls him a rescuer. You can't keep doing this, Forrest. You can't keep trying to rescue me all the time. But that is his motive. You want to talk about twos and uh, wanting to be wanted? So many of his moves are about what can I do to be useful to this person in front of me. The way that he helps his mom, the way that he cuts the grass at uh, different places, the the complete turnaround that happens with him and Lieutenant Dan, and he he shows over and over again that that he is a man of his word that is going to help the people in his life and and that is is how he navigates the world and and i think this is such a good example of of two-ness because they are defining themselves by their relationships yep sir-minded man jenny at one point skeptical of the vietnam war says listen you promise me something okay just if you're ever in trouble don't try to be brave you just run okay he interprets that to mean you run into the middle of battle to save five men and win the congressional medal of honor this is right <laughs> yeah and there's there's i i love that moment because yeah. he's not showing off he's he's just like this is the thing that these people need and i'm here and i'm capable of doing it so i'm going to and no thought for himself or his own safety in that. He's there to serve someone else. Last little monologue at Jenny's gravesite. Uh, he says, You died on a Saturday morning. I had you placed here under a tree. And I had that house of your father bulldozed to the ground. Little forest doing just fine about to start school again soon i make his breakfast lunch and dinner every day i make sure he combs his hair brushes his teeth every day and he goes on and on and he ends with i miss you jenny If there's anything you need, I won't be far away. So much great tuness in this yeah. this stuff. What do you see? Yeah, he's he's speaking to uh, a dead woman's grave, and he says, "If you need anything, I won't be far away." That's where he finds his value. Yep. It, yep. Like this is how he connects to other people. It doesn't know how else to do it except for to serve. He he's not going to do math. He's not going to succeed in any other part of life. The only thing that he has is to be of service to other people. Yep. And so that's how he sees the world. Yep. I have this relationship with you. I have this relationship with my son. My son. The relationship is based on the fact that I make him breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm -hmm. I bulldoze that house. Uh, make sure he does all the things as a servant would. It's a great image of a two. Another fantastic two in film who we we talk about extensively in the future episodes is the MCU's Spider-Man. Which one? Holland's Spider-Man is a stellar example, it seems to me, of a two. Yep. Agreed. It's there to help. Be a friendly neighborhood, Spider-Man. In uh, Civil War, one of the introductory lines very well crafted sets his character in motion and we don't need a whole film showing you uncle ben dying again he says look when you can do the things that i can 
but you don't. And then the bad things happen. They happen because of you. So you want to look out for the little guy, you want to do your part, make the world a better place, all that, right? Yeah, 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 just looking out for the little guy. That's what it is. That statement is both about how he needs to help, and it's also dripping with shame and yep. not doing some stuff. Yep. Uh, you want to talk about twos and, and shame? Yeah, preventing future guilt. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, if you gain your value, your your understanding of your own self-worth from how helpful you are to other people, how useful you are, how much other people need you in their lives, then you're you're going to carry around a a fair amount of shame and relational anxiety and and things about how badly things have gone in the past to make sure that you are not a contributor to things going badly in the future. And like there's there's just this it, when you define yourself based on how other people see you, how other people see you is a big part of what how you make decisions. Yep. That whole first movie for Holland Spider-Man is him just waiting by the phone. Yep. Just I hope somebody loves me. Yep. I hope somebody calls me once wants me to be helpful. I want to be part of the team. I was in the bathroom. I have missed your call. I I was just gonna make a comment about the third movie. Yeah, do which I I've only seen once, and I sort of had a disassociative episode during it, so I don't remember it perfectly. But I do remember that one of the crucial plot points is that Peter would not just undo what had happened. He also wants to save all the bad guys. Yeah. Like, like these are murderers and thieves and like we have seen them do terrible destruction in the other films and all he wants, he will not accept any plan that does not include trying to save them. That's exactly right. Love it. Final character worth elevating. We come back to this character frequently because this is a great spin on twos because twos may come across as the helper, the lover, the one like this self-giving person. Clearly, they're they're a saint on a hill. And we like to bring up Vito Corleone on these fronts who has this motive and doesn't always make all the best choices. Yeah. Lots of wisdom that comes and most of his wisdom is very relational Mm -hmm. And notice how some of these quotes work in terms of gaining love from those who you serve. Vito Corleone, uh, that's that's the godfather, right? That would be correct. <laughs> Played by the great. Oh, crap. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro. There were two of them. There were two famous yeah, actors. True. I could have yeah. named either one of them. Yeah. <laughs> you spend time with your family? Sure I do. Good. Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Wisdom, but it's very self-giving. Yeah. It's not about you. It's about your family. And then you gain from that. I want to point out a, a cultural note here about there. there's a sense of family. You know, that this is something that's pretty important to, to certain cultures and Italians being one of them, that, that family is a really big deal. And putting your family for like th this is a cultural experience so so Vito's uh, 
devotion to his family can certainly be because he is really Italian. But the way that it plays out, like that that specific quote, a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Like it's not just about having a family that you take care of. Like he is the head of this gigantic crime organization and he can make sure that his whole family is totally taken care of and protected and like all of the things are done and he could feasibly do that from a distance. Yep. One will notice not one person in his family isn't fully devoted to him. Right. He has served them and gets their love in return. Right. Exactly. Flows from his motive. Not so his son. Michael does not inspire devotion. Right. uh, Even though he may want it. And he rises to the head of the family because he's the last one left who can. Exactly right. We see that sort of transactional, I give you my best, but expect your best in return all over that character from mm-hmm. how he how he deals with with everybody that comes into his his office. There's an expectation. Best best scene in just the opening scene with him and Bonacera, who is the uh you will know as the mortician. Bonacera wants to pay Vito, who he sees as a violent man, to kill some some rogues who have messed up his daughter. That's not what Vito wants. Right. Vito says to him, You found paradise in America. I had a good trade, made a good living. Police protected you and there were courts of law. And you didn't need a friend like me. But uh, now you come to me and you say, Don Corleone, give me justice. You don't ask for respect. You don't offer friendship. You don't even think to call me Godfather. Instead, you come into my house on the day my daughter's to be married and you ask me to do murder for money. What Corleone wants is relationship, right? And relational capital is how he functions in the world, and that comes out of his motive. Right. He's he's not a gun for hire. Yeah. He wants to be in relationship with these people. And and it's also a good... Vito Corleone is, is a great example of this thing that a, a lot of twos are either unaware of or ashamed of. And it's okay, we know it, and, and we're, not, we're not judging you for this, but there is very much a sense of, I do this thing for you, and now I have a favor stored in my pocket. And like that's literally what happens with Bonacera is is that I am going to do this for you and we are now in relationship and someday I may call upon you to do me a favor. And like that that is part of the relational connection that twos are building. It's the last line to Bonacera. Someday and that day may never come I'll call upon you to do a service for me. But uh, until that day, accept this justice as a gift on my daughter's wedding day. Gracias. Gracias. Adios, Bonacera. Yep. Relational capital. Last word on twos? I have nothing to add. Stock threes. So where ones are motivated to be good and twos want to be wanted, threes want to be seen as successful. Yeah. Again, they may want to be wanted. They they have right and wrong as a, as guiding powers, 
but principle, motive, the thing that energizes threes is that they want to appear successful to others. So lots of great threes on film. We might mention people like Lando Calrissian from Star Wars or Effie Trinket from The Hunger Games. Uh, for us, already mentioned earlier, the quintessential three is is Tony Stark. It's just he's he's Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark is the greatest like billboard for threeness that I have ever seen. I love it so much. TJ, you take that suit off, Tony. What is he? Genius, billionaire, playboy, philanthropist. Such a good line. Take off the iron suit and he's still wildly successful. He has internalized his image to the world and can recite it. Here's my resume. Yep. You want me to sell sell you on me? I got I got my punchline. I also like that that all of this stuff is not who he is. It's think well, the genius part maybe, but like he inherited money and then the company that he inherited made more money that has very little to do with him as a person uh the like playboy philanthropist thing like all of that his the image that he is projecting is not about who he is on the inside yeah which i think is a great point to note about threes has no interest in telling you the negatives right so let me spin my image as positively and compellingly as possible. Right. And he's really good at it. Yeah. He's super good at it. At the beginning of Iron Man 3, he says, I'm Tony Stark. I build neat stuff. Got a great girl, and I occasionally save the world. little uh, braggadocious there. You can take away my house, all my tricks and toys. One thing you can't take away... I am Iron Man. Identity. Yep. So, and it comes across as a brag. Yeah. But it's also the case that you're like, okay, I'm I'm in. Uh, yep. uh, let me see more of this guy. All right. <laughs> in the Age of Ultron, he's he's surrounded by the other Avengers, and he says, Anybody remember when I carried a nuke through a wormhole? No, it's never come up. Save no, New York? Never heard that. Recall that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that exchange cracks me up. Yeah, even his best friend is like, "Yeah, we know you're you're awesome, and you tell us about it all the time." And you see it not in specific language, but just through the images at the beginning of Iron Man Two. The movie starts with him as like this media superstar, and he's appearing before Congress, and he's jumping out of an airplane to arrive on stage in the, you know, in the Iron Man suit at the Stark Expo, and he's driving Formula One cars at Monaco, and it's just so much image. And he's really good at the things that he's doing, but that's part of the image. So you want to talk about uh, threes in appearance? Yeah, the, so um, much like twos, threes are uh, gain their identity from what other people think about them. But unlike twos, threes want to be seen as successful, as as praiseworthy. They They don't want anyone to ever see them fail. And they want to be told how great they are because this is how they understand who they are. So so this image thing is about becoming whoever they need to be to be the most popular person in the room. And Tony having the world as his stage, like he he does what it takes when presented to him to make sure that he is the most noticed person in the room. 
I love that when they're first building the suit and they use a, a gold alloy and he's talking with Jarvis and it's like the, like the gold is ostentatious. So the thing that they change it to is hot, red, like throw some hot red red in right. there. <laughs> and Jarvis is like, yes, that should help you keep a low profile. Like he is all about presentation. Right. And this is the way that threes navigate the world. They they are very interested in, in curating an image to make sure that other people think they're great, that they're really good at what they do, that they're successful, that they're that they're smart, that they're capable, that they're like all of these things. They want other people to see their success and and say it back to them. And so it's it's very much a show. It means that they get really good at doing the things well, but it's not necessarily something that like they're not doing things well to be good at doing things. They're doing things well so that other people will see them doing things well. A lot going on in his heart when when he sees his failures or mistakes. There are sometimes where he's like, "This isn't who I want to be." So in that first movie. What I saw American soldiers killed with the very weapons I've created, and I'm mm-hmm. found I'm part of a company that you know is comfortable with zero accountability. Yep, that's the move. And in two, what he's sick that his suit is poisoning him, and he's hiding that. Right, riding the addiction of the suit in some ways, even from the people who are closest to him. Yep. Yeah. The place where I think it really cuts is at the beginning of Endgame, he has a failure in his mind that he can't spin out of. Right. And it's he lost a kid. And he felt feels like it's entirely his fault. And that's what he says to Steve Rogers when he arrives back home. Right. Right? And then he gets mad. And the, the one of the better performances, I think, of, of Robert Downey Jr., He's at the the facility, everybody's around, and he says to Steve Rogers, I said we'd lose. You said, we'll do that together too. And guess what, Cap? We lost. And you weren't there. But that's what we do, right? Our best work after the fact, we're the Avengers. We're the Avengers, not the pre-Avengers. Okay. Right? You made your point. Just sit down, okay? okay? Lots of language of failure. Mm-hmm. Lots of immediate turning to almost reframing and trying yeah. to move away, but he's in a broken spot there, yeah? Yeah. And part of the reframing that I see happening here is is the like almost like it's it's someone else's fault. It's the system's fault. Like he can't deal with his own failure so significantly. And by the way, he failed in in a situation where literally everyone else who tried failed and against one of the most powerful beings in the universe and like nobody is looking that and going come on tony why didn't you beat thanos like everyone failed everyone lost and that's one of the things that that cap says to him is that like we all lost everything and and he sees this moment where it's like like starts pointing blame because he can't he can't reframe his failure so he's gonna share it with everyone it's like you said that we do this together and you weren't there and we lost the the system is set up in such a way that like we're not actually able to prevent massive problems we're the ones who come and clean up the mess afterward 
Yeah. Like, like that's his reframe is that like, it's not my fault. It's the system's fault. It's, it's your fault. It's whatever else. So much of that character. And we go into this in our, our MCU deep dive. So much of that character ends up being about finding their heart, really getting in touch with their own feelings, their connection to their father, to their lover, um, to their responsibilities for the world. Lots to like about that character as a three. Mm-hmm. Another heroic three, and I'm hoping to push more into some documentaries in the in the years to come. When uh, recently, two big documentaries came out in uh, someone who I think is a, a quintessential three, and that's Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali is a fantastic on the world stage display of a three. You will see the Tony Starkness in Muhammad Ali of I am the greatest. Mm-hmm. You know, just that self-promotion is all over this man doing some heavy lifting. Yeah, just to run down a, a handful of quotes. Before facing the heavyweight champion of the world when he was young. It would have been Sonny Liston. It's like this just enormous man. I saw Sonny Liston a few days ago, Cashin. Ain't he ugly? <laughs> he- He's too ugly to be the world champ. The world champ should be pretty like me. <laughs> the self-promotion, the elevation of self on the on the stage. And the image of a winner. Yes. Like the image of a winner is really important. It shouldn't be him. It doesn't matter how well he fights. He, the winner is supposed to be attractive. This is Cassius Marcellus Clay. He's young. He's handsome. They know it. After beating Liston, which he does decisively, he's he's just yelling. He's so hyped up, and he's yelling. I'm the greatest thing that ever lived. I don't have a mark on my face, yeah. and I upset Sonny Liston, and I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. Now, I told the world. I am the king of the world. Hold it, hold it, hold I'm it. Pretty. Hold it, you're not that pretty. I'm a bad man. Wait, wait. I shook up the world. I shook up the world. Oh, I shook up the world. I want you to see who I am, and he's announcing it yeah. aggressively. Yeah, His journey is real interesting because in some sense, there's a handful of failures and a handful of things that he's not necessarily able to spin the way that he might like to. Right. He is a devout Muslim, as, as you know, and being part of the black Muslims ends up being a challenge. Like, how do I elevate this in the way that I want it to be elevated for myself, for my community, for the world at large. Mm-hmm. That becomes a thing. He ends up having his title stripped from him because he won't serve in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And somebody else takes the titles. And Joe Frazier takes the titles. And they, it sets up like two or three years later, they get to have the first fight between two undefeated heavyweight champions of the world. And he goes into that. He's been waiting three years, and he loses that first fight. And how he wrestles with that loss on a very public stage. Real interesting. Sure. And then he has his fight with Parkinson's disease. And watching a three on stage who is arguably, you know, one of the most famous men of the 20th century mm-hmm. around the planet. Yeah. Um, just a, fa- a fantastic uh, image of a three on stage. Do you want to talk about just the assertive quality of grabbing hold of attention that comes from threes? Yeah, I think that um, like both Ali and and Tony Stark are great examples of how it's it's not just about 
wanting to be famous. It's it's not like that. That's not what this is. It's it's demanding. Like the fact that they are the best at the thing that they're doing is so that they will get attention. And and they the assertiveness, the the aggression involved in saying, "Hey, you better pay attention to me because I'm gonna rock your world." Like that is part and parcel of threeness. It's 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 not just being in the limelight it's pulling the limelight toward you in a way that says hey look at me over here yep. and and a lot of threes a, a lot of unhealthy threes display this in in really noticeable ways um but but i think it's part of being a three it's wanting to draw the attention and and not everybody tries to draw the attention to themselves not everybody who's in the limelight wants that limelight but threes do threes want that attention for the thing that they're trying to present yep might mention just other characters uh, nearly everyone that arnold schwarzenegger plays is Mm -hmm. comes across as a three except for if he's playing a robot uh nearly everybody that tom cruise plays is probably a, a three yeah. If you watch Pumping Iron with Schwarzenegger or m- one of my favorite films, The Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise, uh, great images of of how threeness comes out in mm-hmm. the motives of those characters. So yeah, he's an officer, but he's never actually fought. Like right, like th- this is his way of seeming successful. He's a salesman. That's all he's doing. Yep. Yeah. And then you have the character's journey through that whole movie. Yeah. Of, of becoming what he was pitching. Yeah. You know, kind of at the beginning. Fours. Here's the thing about fours. Like twos and threes, fours are going to want attention, but it starts with the attention that they give themselves. Fours want their lives to be significant and unique, and they are looking at that to see if they are, you know, uh, up to the ideals that they have, the romantic ideals they have for what a significant, unique life might look like. Lots of great classic characters are fours. Uh, T. Lawrence from Lawrence of Arabia, or we might name Hamlet is probably a four. Frodo Baggins, TJ and I have talked to, uh, about in future podcasts, very likely a four. My favorite four on film, we haven't talked about this character yet, but I think Remy from Ratatouille is a stellar example. Have we talked about Great. I we, don't think we brief. have, but you're exactly right. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. Much of the dialogue from Remy is introspective and targeting like how he feels about situations. And that's yeah. like it's like almost the voiceover quality of that movie right. is his inner monologue about how he should be in the world and what he's wrestling with. Yeah, the the summary of that movie is basically I just want to be me. That's that's exactly yeah. it. Right? <laughs> in the opening, he's describing to the audience, you know, why he loves food and he's watching gusto and gusto's on tv and gusto says how can i describe it good food is like music you can taste color you can smell there is excellence all around you you need only be aware to stop and savor it and then there's a scene the artists like black in the background and all you see is remy and he's gonna pick up a strawberry and some cheese. Oh, Gusto was right. Oh, mm, yeah. Oh, amazing. Each flavor was totally unique. But 
combine one flavor with another, and something new was created. And we are seeing the internal experience that Remy is having, both the artistic experience, the, as he was saying, like a totally unique flavor and experience. That is the target because mm. it's filled with significance and that's yeah. his motive. Yeah. And it, it's diving into the a level of seeing reality that not everyone is interested or capable in diving into. Yep. We yeah. see this with his brother. Mm-hmm. What have you got there? Ah, oh, oh. <laughs> you found cheese? And not just any cheese. Tom de Chevre de Pay! Well, throw it on the pile, I guess. And then we'll, you know. We don't want to throw this in with the garbage. This is special. Mm-hmm. This is special. Yep. We notice that Remy is walking uh, on his back two feet, mm-hmm. keeping his hands clean. Very different from the other rats in the family. And and fine just being him. Yep. Yeah. Because his life's going to be significant. Doesn't right. want to get his hands dirty. It's going to affect the, the taste of food that he's going to enjoy. Right. High value of authenticity. When he's entrapped, he's in a cage, having a conversation with the imaginary Gusteau in his mind. Oh, please. I'm sick of pretending. I pretend to be a rat for my father. I pretend to be a human through Linguini. I I pretend you exist so I have someone to talk to. You only tell me stuff I already know. I know who I am. Why do I need you to tell me? Why do I need to pretend? (laughs) Ah, but you don't, Remy. You never did. Lots of identity focus. Yeah. Yeah. And, and... Uh, like like threes, what image am I presenting to the world? But unlike threes, fours are very concerned about making sure the depth of themselves is the image that they are presenting. Another very introspective character is Hamlet. You get into Hamlet? I don't know that we've ever talked Shakespeare, you and I. I have not read or seen any production of Hamlet since high school. But I have seen and read Hamlet. I got myself a York tattoo, so I got to bring up this scene. It's worthwhile. When uh, the fifth act starts, you see Hamlet. He's in a cemetery, and he has this exchange with a grave digger. How long will a man lie the earth ere he rot? Oh, faith, if it be not rotten before he dies, some eight year, nine year. The same skull, sir. What's the Yorick skull? The king's jester. And this is somebody that the gravedigger knew. In Hamlet, he takes the skull, he says to his friend, Alas, poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio. A fellow of infinite jest of most excellent fancy. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times, and now how abhorred in my imagination it is. My gorge rises at it. Here hung those lips that I have kissed I know not how oft. Where be your jibes now? Your gambles, your songs, your flashes of merriment that were wont to set the table on a roar. (laughs) And he's reminiscing about this beloved figure in his life. But notice, it's not about the beloved figure. It's how the beloved figure made him feel about himself. Nearly all of Hamlet is of of that sort, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, the 
processing the world through uh like like twos and threes and fours we talked about um understanding my value based on what other people think about me and fours interestingly sort of gloss over what other people think about me with needing to focus on what I think about myself to make sure that's what other people see so that when other people tell me about myself they're seeing the thing that I I'm actually interested which is myself so much of Hamlet's inner dialogue is of that sort mm-hmm. just re- wrestling with all the issues and his significance and a lot of Hamlet is about death and the significance of death and that's that that is coming out in those very emotional kind of phrasings right to be or not to be that is the question whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die Last character for me here. I'm going to do my best in the next three or four years to get TJ to do Lawrence of Arabia with me. (laughs) Here's the sales pitch. Steven Spielberg is the greatest director ever. And his favorite film, the film he thinks is the greatest film, is Lawrence of Arabia. Hmm, Sure. Quick setup for those of you who haven't seen it yet, which you should. Get yourself a good big glass of scotch. Four hours. Have an afternoon where you just want to sit and enjoy just being in your basement in front of a, a large television. You gotta find a large television. Yeah. Watch this movie. Ah, because it's it's almost like a western in in that it's there, there's landscapes and there's like it it's a it's a pretty film. I I'm told. Well, Lawrence is a British officer, but he's serving in what would become Saudi Arabia, and he has an important task to do. And he has an Arab guide at the beginning of the film. His name is Tafas. And Tafas asks him, Truly now, you are a British officer? Yes. From Cairo? Yes. You did not ride from Cairo? No. Thank heaven. It's 900 miles. I came by boat. And before? From Britain? Yes. Truly? From Oxfordshire. Is that a desert country? No. A fat country. Fat people. You are not fat? No. I'm different. Fat people. You are not fat. No. I'm different. (laughs) <laughs> love this scene in line and this is the foreigners coming out yeah he 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 comes from a green island in the north and right. he finds himself in a desert yeah fighting in during world war one in a space that isn't even on the radar really for england right and this this single man does like reshapes the world because of his activities during world war one anyway anything we're saying there in that yeah it's it's just funny how he's 
like the way that he answers these questions is is funny to me. Like he, yep. you didn't ride from Cairo? No, of course not, because that's nine hundred miles. Uh, like mm-hmm. like there's the the sort of derision involved there is is like like pointing out the silliness of what he's said, uh, because that's ridiculous that somebody would ride that much. Like, I think that's funny. Um, and when he asked from Britain, he tells this guy who probably doesn't know very much about Britain, exactly where he's from in Britain. Right. Right. (laughs) I don't know that much about Britain, but I probably know more than someone in world war one who lives in, where are they? Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're in what would become Saudi Arabia. I, I don't even know what Oxfordshire is. Right. Uh, and then the way that he answers about, like, he talks about Britain is like, yep. these are people who are not living a, a good life, who are not being true to themselves or whatever. Like, they're bad for whatever reason, and I'm different. Yeah. It's, it's the overindulgence that he is disgusted by because mm-hmm. they're fat people, and I want to be set apart from that. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm from Oxfordshire, which I, I think you're right, it houses the oldest university in the world. It's distinct. It actually is significant. Right. He can hold it up. Here's something beautiful. But the people there, they're different from me. Yeah. And even the the self-understanding, I'm different. Right. You'll notice the inward journey. And so much of a Lawrence of Arabia is of that sort. It's this epic. It is It is the quintessential epic of a man traveling the world, and yet the real traveling that takes place in the movie is internally. Right. Bang. This is a good place to, to break this nap, I think. Half-ish, yeah. Yeah, Four. half-ish. Yeah. An intro in four types. Half of nine. We'll hit five next time. Yeah. Perfect. Three quick things. We're going to be releasing new episodes about once a month or so. Uh, you can find all the links to all of our stuff at aroundthecircle.org. Our other podcast is called the Around the Circle Podcast. Or if you don't know your type yet, you want to see some of our basic stuff, we have another podcast feed called Start Here, which is worth hitting. Or you can just hit that typing test that's going to come after these first two introductory episodes. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's a, it's... It's doable, but it is not at all a good idea to try and type yourself from the way that we talk about the movies. It can be helpful, but it's not a good idea to rely solely on it. There are lots of other opportunities for you to do the surveys and like self-assess about what your type is. But if you don't know, I'd say go figure that out. Don't just listen to these pop culture things. And good news, we got the tools. Yep. Start here, podcast, around the circle podcast. Both these are our tools for, for talking depthily about each of the types. And uh, of course, if you like this podcast, give us some stars or a review on the iTunes. That's always appreciated. And that's what I got. You got anything else, TJ? You got nothing, man. It's TJ Wilson. It's officially awesome. I'm Jeff Cook. Who you aren't isn't interesting. We'll see you next time. Straight to the chopper! I drink your milkshake. I could have been a contender. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. To infinity and beyond! Why so serious? I am serious. And don't call me Shirley.